Now, Father, we thank you for your great grace and mercy and faithfulness which follows each of us all of our lives. We thank you, God, that we can gather here today to celebrate you, to celebrate your goodness and your love, to learn about you, to draw closer to you. Lord, I pray that we would hear your voice, that we would not let the distractions of this week or the distractions of the world hinder us from focusing on you. And so I pray, Father, as we dive into your word this morning, as we look into this wonderful passage about Melchizedek, that you would just give us your grace, that you would speak to us during this time, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have been saying for months, literally months, like ever since we got into the book of Hebrews, and ever since Melchizedek was first mentioned in the book of Hebrews a couple chapters back, that one day we were going to get into who Melchizedek is. Today is the day. Now, here's the fun thing. As I mentioned, we have been looking at very short portions of the book of Hebrews for the last couple months. Three verses here, four verses here. A couple weeks ago, we got through two verses. And as I got into chapter 7, and I kind of knew this was coming, I couldn't break chapter 7 up. So it may feel like we're moving through it a little faster, at least a little faster than we have other portions of Hebrews. But the context of chapter 7, really, if we wanted to sit here for the next three or four hours, we should do 7, 8, 9, and the first half of chapter 10 all together. And the reason I say that is because those three and a half chapters are essentially one thought. Now, it's presented in a bunch of different ways. It's applied in different ways. We draw from the Old Testament in different ways for that thought. But that whole thought is the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And how Jesus is, and we've mentioned this, he is our great high priest. We talked about that before. But now we're going to find out all the details of what that means. What that means to us as followers of Christ. What that means in comparison with the law. What that means for the whole of Scripture and our salvation. And if I were to try to break some of these chapters up, I think we would lose context. So either this message is going to be an hour and a half long, or it's going to feel like we moved through this chapter a little quickly. Only time will tell. But before we get into chapter 7, I did tell you to turn to chapter 7. It was kind of a lie. I really wanted you to turn to Genesis chapter 14. And um, it's on page 15 if you need help with that. If it's not on page 15 in your Bible, you may, you may have the wrong Bible. That's a joke, of course, kind of. But all the way back in Genesis chapter 14, I'll give you a little background while you're getting there. Abraham had been taking care of his nephew, Lot. And they had too much stuff to live together, mostly because they had so many flocks and herds that the land couldn't support grazing of all those animals. So, Abraham said, Lot, you, you pick a direction, I'll go the other one. So Lot goes and lives near Sodom. Later we'll see him in Sodom. But he goes and lives near Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, while he's over there, this group of kings uh, that you see in chapter 14, verse 1, I'm not going to read all their names, um, goes after the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah in that general area, and they win, and they take everybody captive, including Lot. So Abraham takes 318 of his trained servants, Right Now, why did he have 318 servants who were trained in war? I don't know. I, I'd kind of like to have 318, you know, uh, 
servants trained in war are like, hey, you know what? Let's go invade Montrose. No, we wouldn't do that. We, we like Montrose. They have a church. Um, but he finds out, he takes his 318 servants, wipes out all of these kings, gets all the stuff back, including his nephew Lot. Now, in chapter, verse 18, while he's on his way back, it says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, speaking of Abraham, gave him, speaking of Melchizedek, a tithe of all. Right? Beautiful little spot. So out of nowhere, seemingly, this guy Melchizedek shows up. Abraham's on the way back. Notice what, what does he bring out? Bread and wine. Familiar? Who else gave bread and wine? Jesus did, of course. Right? What does Abraham do after Melchizedek blesses him? Well, he gives Abra Abraham gives Melchizedek a tithe of the spoils. Why? Who do we tithe to? Right? I mean, you might put your check in the, in the bucket for the church, but, or the plate, or whatever. But ultimately, we're, we're giving that to God. Interesting, right? Now, this eh, was quite a while back. Then, all of a sudden, somewhere around a thousand years later, give or take, we turn to Psalm 110. And in Psalm 110, verse 4, all of a sudden, after a thousand years of not hearing anything about a guy named Melchizedek, David, our psalmist in Psalm 110, says in verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. He will not turn back. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Out of nowhere. Seemingly, right? Is it really out of nowhere? God knows what he's doing. But... Both of these passages will come up in chapter 7. The reason we turned here first is because there are only three places in the whole of Scripture where Melchizedek is mentioned. Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and then the book of Hebrews. The first two references, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110, are just like, Hey, here's this guy Melchizedek. Here's some bread and wine, have some tithes, right? We don't hear from him again for a thousand years. Or hear anything about him. Then David, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's writing a song, and he's like, Lord, you want me to talk about who? Okay. And he writes something about Melchizedek. Nobody, David probably didn't even know who he was other than the reference in Genesis 14, because David would have had that. And then all of a sudden, we go another seven, eight, nine hundred years. Jesus comes on the scene. His ministry, his death, his resurrection. The church is born. And somewhere in there, Paul sits down. And we, we talked about all the various ways Paul may have been involved in the creation of the book of Hebrews under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But Paul sits down and he's writing and he's... He's getting into all the things we've talked about up to this point, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit goes, hey, tell everybody who Melchizedek is. And he goes, yeah, that's a great way to take up like 30% of this book. And so that's what we're going to start with today. It's a long time getting there, isn't it? So I don't really feel bad about it. Chapter 7 of Hebrews, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains 
a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he, whose genealogy is not derived from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is written that he lives. Notice, not he lived, he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. The theology nerd in me loves chapter 7. And it's so much fun this week. So Paul begins with the reference to Genesis 14 that we just read. Where Abraham meets Melchizedek. Actually, Melchizedek comes out to meet Abraham. Uh, and he goes on to point out the uniqueness of Melchizedek and begins to really give evidence to us for why Melchizedek is Jesus. And that's important. Now, by the time we're done with this chapter, that'll become more important. So first we get the description of Melchizedek. His name means king of righteousness. Melchizedek. That's what that name means. Uh, in First John chapter 2, verse 1, it says, My little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness. Jesus is the king of righteousness. Not done yet. He's the king of Salem, which would have been Jerusalem. Right? At the time, it was just called Salem. That city had been around for a while. But the name Salem comes from the Hebrew Shalom. It means peace. So not only is he the king of righteousness, he is also the king of peace. Ephesians 2, 13 and 14. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has been made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. So Jesus, of course, is, well, the scripture says Prince of Peace in Isaiah chapter 9, but it's a poor translation. He's the King of Peace. Without father, without mother, or without genealogy. If you've read through the Old Testament, you will probably notice that something that was very important to the Jewish people were their genealogies. If there is an important person in the Old Testament, we get their genealogy. We have Abraham's genealogy. Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, we have their genealogies. We follow their genealogies all the way down. Go read the first nine chapters of 1 Chronicles. Right? I'll let you in on a little secret. When I read through the Bible and I get to 1 Chronicles chapter 1, I turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 10. Because between chapters 1 and 9 of 1 Chronicles, it's nothing but names. Hebrew names. Wrong Hebrew names. Right? And while I appreciate that they're there and, and I know why they're there, we needed those genealogies established so Jesus could claim the throne of Israel, I'm not going to remember them, so I usually just kind of flip through a few pages and move on. But genealogies are really important. So Melchizedek, though, he doesn't have one. We're never told who his mother or father was. We're never told anything about him in that way. Now, some people will make the argument that Melchizedek can't be Jesus because we have Jesus' human genealogy in Matthew and Luke. One is a genealogy through his birth mother, Mary. One is the genealogy through his adopted father of Joseph's. But that was just there 
for Jesus' claim to Israel's throne. It's not his actual genealogy. His actual genealogy is eternal. We'll get to that in a moment. Because the next thing we read about Melchizedek is that he has neither beginning of days nor end of life. What does that mean? That means he's eternal. Melchizedek is eternal. And there is only one who has appeared in human form throughout all of Scripture who is eternal. And that's Jesus. Even in the Old Testament, when God talks to human beings in person, right? We see, uh, we'll, we'll see that when we see it in the garden. We see it here not too far off um, in Genesis when God came and told Abraham what he was going to do. We see it in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. We see it a lot, right? Every time that happens, it's what we call a Christology or a theophany. Not a Christology, a Christophany or a theophany, which is an Old Testament physical appearance of God. But every time, that's Jesus. You ready? We're not done. We have eternal souls. But we are not eternal beings in this body. Right? So this body will die. We'll get a new one. Woohoo! Right? We talked about Skiwiska the day after me. We'll get to heaven. All the men will look like Chris Hemsworth. Or maybe not. I don't know. But, um, but we'll get a new body. And our souls are eternal. But there's only one who appears in all of Scripture who has no beginning and no end. Now that's what makes us different. You and I had a beginning. Even though our souls will endure for eternity, our physical bodies will come to an end. But we all had a beginning. If you go back and read Psalm 139, it's described beautifully. How God knit us together in our mother's womb. And how all the days of our life were written in his book before there were any of them. Right? That means we had a beginning. God did not. He's eternal. Now, if you really want to blow your mind, right? you want to not be able to sleep for a couple days, when you lay down tonight, start thinking about the fact that God never started. He just always was. And if you can wrap your mind around that, let me know because I can't. John chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, and then verse 14 is where we get the eternal genealogy of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, the agent of creation, existed before anything was ever created. He's eternal. And then he is made like the Son of God and remains a priest continually. To say that Melchizedek was made like the Son of God and has this word for that he remains a priest continually literally means that he has an endless priesthood. Means this cannot be describing a human being. It can't. It must be describing Jesus. It has to be. I'm not done proving that. Right, The rest of the chapter will give us more evidence. Then we have this issue of tithes and blessings, which makes it even more apparent. One, that Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham. Remember, the book of Hebrews was written to a Jewish audience. And to a Jewish audience, there was no greater figure in their history than Abraham. You go read John chapter 8, and which we're going to look at in just a moment, the Jews were like, we're children of Abraham, right? They, they based their whole identity on being descendants of Abraham. And Jesus is like, so, right? Well, in a moment. So for Abraham to give tithes to Melchizedek shows that Melchizedek is greater. Then Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And in the Jewish culture, 
The greater would bless the lesser. It was never the other way around. It was not culturally acceptable. Now, in all cultures, right, especially as followers of Christ, we are all one in Christ. We are all equal. So there isn't no, isn't no, I got to me an edumacation. There ain't no light, lesser, or greater among us. That's not how that works, right? It just isn't. We don't, we don't operate that way anymore. But in the, in the Jewish culture, that was a very big thing. So if you were wealthy and some poor person came up and tried to bless you, no, they would stop it because they considered the poor person less than the rich person greater. So the fact that Melchizedek blessed Abraham showed that Melchizedek is greater, which Jesus also did in John chapter 8, verses 56 through 58. Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Oh, it's one of my favorite passages. What do the Jews do after he says that? They try to kill him. Now, there are those who argue that Jesus never claimed to be God. Oh, read the Gospels. Jesus never claimed to be God. All you got to do is read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and every time the Jews try to kill Jesus, just look at the passage right before it. Because every time it's because he claimed to be God. Ultimately, when they took him before Pilate, they said, him being a man, or he being a man, makes himself out to be God. So they knew what he was claiming. And that's what he does right there. The I am is a reference back to Exodus chapter 3. So not only is Jesus claiming to be God, he's claiming to be the voice of the burning bush that spoke to Moses and sent him to Egypt. Very, very cool. At least in my mind. I think this is awesome. Are you guys having fun yet? Verse 10. All right, we'll get back to Hebrews. Oh, no, verse 11, sorry, verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has ever officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So now we get into the second argument. Right? The first argument is essentially that Melchizedek is greater. The second argument becomes Melchizedek has a perfect priesthood, which is different than the priesthood under the Levitical law. Because that priesthood was imperfect. And, and we're going to... This is why I couldn't break it up. Right? Because then verses 20 through 28 really explain why Jesus is, has a better priesthood. The main idea here is, though, is there's no perfection in the law. Therefore, the priesthood under the law would be imperfect. And since there was a need for a new priesthood separate from Levi that would be perfect, this required a change. So Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. This is actually established as far back as the book of Ruth. But it's specifically established for us in the two human genealogies we talked about in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, where Jesus' human genealogy through Mary and Joseph is established. And since no high priest would come from Judah, Jesus must be a high priest according to a different order. And so that's important. The reason there was no high priest from the tribe of Judah is because it was through Judah that the kings would come. 
that was prophesied by Jacob on his deathbed all the way back in Genesis chapter 49. And by the time it comes to pass, um, really in 2 Samuel, even though David was anointed king in 1 Samuel, but from that time, the kings all came from the tribe of Judah after David. Right? So Jesus, to make a claim to the throne of Israel, had to be from the tribe of Judah. But they were separate, right? Kings from Judah, priests from Levi, kind of like the way we have three branches of government. Now, we're not going to talk about how our three branches of government do or do not work. <clears throat> but what we're going to talk about is how the point behind it was that no one person would have too much power. That was the goal. It's the same thing here. God wanted the priesthood and the monarchy separate so that no one person would have too much problems or too much power. And if you look throughout the Old Testament, what would happen when kings would try to take on priestly, that priestly position? It was bad. It was bad really quickly. So Jesus had to be made a high priest, not according to the fleshly law, but according to the power of an endless life. I love that statement. Because Jesus is eternal, and because he is the author of life, according to Acts 3.15, he is then made a perpetual priest by our Father. And this is exactly what we refer back to Psalm 110 for, because God said, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, the change in the priesthood actually required a change in the law. The annulling of the former government. This, the government? Covenant. Covenant. That's probably the word I was looking for. The annulling of the former government. Because it actually says commandment in my notes. I don't know... I don't know where that came from. <laughs> but what this word means, this annulling of the former commandment, is the putting away of the law by Jesus Christ. Now, for your homework this week, go read the book of Galatians, or you can listen to the Galatians study we've been doing uh, in our morning devotion. Because the whole point of the law is to point us to Jesus Christ. The law says, hey, this is what perfection would look like. And then the law says, you can't do it, so here's some sacrifices so you don't spend eternity in judgment. And now, all of those sacrifices, all of the feast, if you're really in a good mood, go listen to all the studies from the book of Leviticus, because all of it points to Jesus Christ. Every feast, every sacrifice points to Jesus. And when we get into the book of Galatians, Paul explains to us that the purpose of the law was to be our schoolmaster leading us to Christ. You can't do it, so Jesus did it. Believe in him, and you'll be all right. Now, that's kind of a simplified version, but that's what it says. So it had to be changed. Why did it have to be changed? Because it was weak. Because it was weak. Why was the law weak? Because it relied on human beings. And Folks, if you didn't know it already, we're kind of weak. Or really weak, depending on the day. It was also unprofitable. It was useless or not advantageous because the law made nothing perfect. Romans 3.20 tells us, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Galatians 2.16, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Both of those scriptures and a host of other ones tell us very simply that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. I can't be good enough. I can't go to church enough. I can't give enough money to charity. I can't be nice enough to puppies. I can't rescue kittens from trees, right? There's nothing you can do to be good enough to get into heaven. I hope that doesn't disappoint anybody. 
And if it does, keep listening. Because there's nothing we can do to, disa to disappoint ourselves. Oh, I can do that. If, because there's nothing we can do to save ourselves, because there's no work we can perform, there's no law we can keep, there's no religious exercise we can practice that will ever be good enough to get us in, Jesus said, I'll tell you what, I'll do it for you. And so he was born sinless. And then he lived a sinless life, perfectly keeping the entirety of the law. That even when he was tempted, that we read about in Matthew chapter 4, he didn't sin. Because temptation isn't a sin. It's giving in to temptation that's the problem. He lived perfect life. Then, God demonstrates his love for us. And that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So on that cross, Jesus Christ took my place. And your place says in Hebrews chapter 12, which we'll get to one day, for the joy sent before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. That joy, guys, is you and me. That's his joy. Those who would believe in him and thereby be saved. And so his sinless birth, his sinless life, his substitutionary death, and subsequent victorious resurrection is how we get to heaven. Not by anything we do. I love that you walked in and said amen. I didn't even know it. I said it ten minutes before that. You might have missed something bad. But that's the beauty of the gospel. And the beauty of God's word. Because it's not about us trying to figure out how we're going to get there. We get there because Jesus has done it all. And we believe in that. And that, then, is the better hope that was brought in through which we draw near to God. The better hope is Jesus, right? Not hoping I can be good enough. Not hoping I can keep enough of the law. Not hoping that I can rescue enough kittens. But hoping in what Jesus has already done. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I know we have eight more verses, but we need that hope. We need it. Right? Look at the world we live in. Chaos. Division. Sin being celebrated and propagated and forced down the throats of small children. Abortion and war and famine and, well, and there's got to be pestilence somewhere too. Just ask, yeah, just ask ask my son. He'll tell you where the most current locust infestation is going on or locust swarm. Right? Look at our world. Can we place our hope in money? Well, the last year has shown us what happens. Money can lose value very quickly. Right? Can we place money or hope in our government? <clears throat> I don't care who gets elected. I don't care what color they are, red or blue. Our government can't save us. They just can't. Oh, so you know what we should place our hope in? We'll place our hope in world government. Right? So if small government can't save us, let's make it bigger. You guys remember the, the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing and expecting a different result? It's not how it works. So let's put our hope in science. Anybody? I mean, don't get me wrong, science has given us some pretty cool things. But what we've noticed over the last couple of years is science changes based on the political need. Interesting, isn't it? So what do we put our hope in? Right? Start going through the entirety of the list. What do we put our hope in? Don't put your hope in me. I will let you down. I'm not going to put my hope in you. Love y'all. But, but I, I, 
number of pieces as well. Sorry, that was a little mean, just a little. Right, so where should we put our hope? There's only one place, the eternal hope, the better hope that is in Jesus Christ. Right, and then we live in a world where well, I, I, I can't come back. I've done too much. Eh, everybody can come back. Oh, I, I can't get saved. God will never accept me. Right? That attitude is, what can I do to get saved? So let me make it easy for you. You already know this. There's nothing. Well, I'm not worthy. You're right. You're not worthy. I don't deserve to be forgiven. You're right. You don't deserve to be forgiven. I'm too big of a sinner. Join the club. You want to compare notes? I will probably win. If I'm honest with you. Well, but, but you don't understand what I've done. I don't care what you've done. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us of all our sins. It's that simple. You want hope? Third argument is Jesus' unchangeable priesthood. Oh, yeah, we're doing good. I know. Well, at least I am. Verse 20, And inasmuch as he was not made a priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more Jesus has become surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, speaking of Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 is one of the most important scriptures in the book of Hebrews, if not the entirety of the Bible. I'll tell you why in a minute. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people. For this he did, listen, once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints a high priest, or as high priest, men who have weakness. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints the son who has been perfected forever. That's the verse. That proves to us, in case there was any doubt, that Paul is teaching us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is Melchizedek. Melchizedek has the eternal priesthood. And Jesus was appointed by the oath. What oath? The oath we're talking about from Psalm 110, verse 4, he was appointed by that oath as a priest forever. So the only conclusion that I can come to, and maybe you have a different conclusion, and you're welcome to do that, I tell people all the time, you are allowed to be wrong. But the only conclusion we can come to that makes sense to me from the scripture, and please don't take that wrong, I'm not always right, but I'm pretty sure I'm right about this, is that Jesus is Melchizedek. Or, turn it around, Melchizedek is Jesus. They are one and the same. So let's break this down just a little bit. God the Father made Jesus the Son a priest forever, according to to the order of Melchizedek, making Jesus the perfect, eternal high priest who became the surety or guarantee. It's, it's literally the word means down payment, right? You buy a house these days. Did you know they want 20% down on houses these days? Right? So you want to go buy a house in Gunnison that's a million dollars, and they want 200 grand. You know, if I had $200,000, I'd buy something good for myself. I will be, you know, in Paris. Come and visit me. I'll be sipping coffee on a sidewalk cafe, judging all the people that walk by. It's one of my favorites. Have you ever been to Paris? You can just sit there and 
I think kind of make little funny looks, and people, some people in church are weird. Well, I'll walk around Gunnison, some people in Gunnison are weird too. But I'm just saying, so you kind of sit there, and we'll play a little games being a little bit judgmental. It's not nice, and we should repent, but it's fun. But I'm like, 200 grand down on a house? I don't have $200,000 in my pocket. I wouldn't buy a million-dollar house either, but that's beside the point. But that's what it means. Why did the bank require that kind of down payment? Because now you're invested that much into that house, so you're not just going to skip out on your payments. Because if you just skip out on your payments, you lose that money. That's what Jesus has done for us. He is the down payment of this covenant. The new covenant, which he established in his blood... On the night he was betrayed, it's what we celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's Supper or Communion, and it's what we're going to focus on greatly in chapter 8, so I'm not going to talk too much about it now. You have to come back next week. But then this leads to the comparison of the human priesthood and Jesus' priesthood. What was wrong with the human priesthood? It was temporary, right? Those priests would die. It was weak because it relied on the strength of the human priests, and priests are weak. Uh, as we've been talking about in 1 Samuel, the priests actually become so corrupt that God killed them. Right? It required daily sacrifices. In order for the priest to minister before the Lord, they had to make sin sacrifices for themselves before they could offer sin sacrifices for others. So they had to do this every single day, first for their own sins and then for the sins of others. Why was Jesus' priesthood better? Jesus' priesthood is better because it is perfect, it is eternal, and it is able. I did those out of order. should be eternal, perfect, and able. That's what we're told in this passage. Because he continues forever, he has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him through, or come through to God through him, since he has always lived to make intercession Notice what makes Jesus' priesthood perfect. It lasts forever. It does not and cannot change. Because of this, he is able to save us totally and completely. That's what the word save to the uttermost men means. Totally and completely. He doesn't save part of us and we do the rest. He doesn't save most of us and we do a little bit. He doesn't save 99.9%. We just got to get a little sprinkle a little in there just to make sure we get in. No, uttermost, everything, he does it all. And as a result, he intercedes for us before the Father. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. We read a verse earlier that says he is our advocate. It's a legal word. It means he's our lawyer. I love that. Get to the book of Revelation, we're told that the accuser of the brethren accuses us before God day and night. So paint this picture. Anybody here ever been in court? I've been in court several times. Uh, never because I, I broke the law or was on my way to prison. It was for different things. Um, uh, I do remember one time, um, I, was, I was so infuriated, my lawyer had to put his hand on my arm so I wouldn't do anything stupid. Um, long story. Which most of you have heard, but that's beside the point. But he was on my side. The lawyer was on my side. Right? There were other lawyers who weren't on my side. There were other people who weren't on my side. It turned out the judge wasn't on our side either. But my lawyer was on my side. He was there to protect me and my family. That was his job. And he got paid very well for it. But um, now picture Jesus. He is our advocate. And this is the picture I always get when I put all this together. Satan's up there. He's the accuser of the brethren. Right? We know from the book of Job he has at least limited access to the throne room of God. And the accuser, right, day and night, he accuses us. So what's his job? Did you see what Jason did there? Did you see it? Right? And you hear the, the thought that he had, the glance that he gave, the words that he spoke, the finger that he extended. Like this one. Right? Did you see that? And God's like, of course. Satan's like, he, sh he should go to hell, right? He shouldn't be forgiven. He's violated your law. He's violated your covenant. He's violated your righteousness. Did you see? Did you see? Did you see? 
he deserves hell. And God, because he's righteous, would say, you're right, he does. And then my advocate steps up. Dad, I got hell. And the father looks at the son and goes to the devil. Yeah, that one was covered. Right now, he can do that all day long. He can do it every day, and he can do it to all of us. But if we know Christ as Savior, every single time, Jesus will stand up in our place and say, I took care of it. Oh, what a glorious salvation we have. Then we get this beautiful description of Jesus' character. He's the high priest who's fitting because he's holy. He's harmless. He's undefiled, and he's separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens. Jesus' priesthood is based on his perfect character. Right? The human priesthood, the priests had flaws. Character defects, as it were. Jesus' priesthood is not that way. His character is perfect. He's holy, which means he's without sin. Harmless. He will never do anything to hurt us. Undefiled. He has never done anything or had anything done to him that would make him anything less than perfect. Separate from sinners. That word separate is sanctified, right? He is not a sinner. He is in a different category than they are. And he's become higher than the heavens. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 tells us that Jesus has been given the name above every other name. Exalted to the right hand of God. And finally, Jesus' sacrifice was and is perfect. And I already preached on this today. But it says that he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And we're going to talk more about this in the weeks ahead. But here we need to know that when Jesus said it is finished on the cross in John 19.30, at that moment he had accomplished everything necessary for all time in order for all of us to be saved. It was cemented at that moment, and then proven at his resurrection. Now, will everybody be saved? No. There will be people who reject this beautiful free offer of salvation. I hope it's not you. Or anybody listening online. I, oh, I just hope and pray it's not you. Because there will be people who won't be there, but could have been. As we close, yay, we made it. Jesus is our perfect high priest. After the order of Melchizedek, appointed as such, after the giving of the law, Psalm 110 comes after the Levitical law in the historical timeline of Scripture. And as our perfect high priest, Jesus can save each and every one of us who believe in him by responding to the offer of the free gift. Now, when we were in the first part of chapter 6, we talked about the elementary principles of our faith that we may refer to in our day and age as what I would call Theology 101. Right? You go back to Hebrews, the beginning of Hebrews chapter 6. Uh, it's things like repentance from dead works and faith toward God, the doctrine of baptisms and all that. If you want to know about those, I do have that on uh, not Facebook, our YouTube page, Below the Calf Know Your Pastor. But that's Theology 101. What we explored today, and what we are going to explore in chapters 8, 9, and the first half of 10, is graduate level. It's up there, guys. This stuff is deep. There's a lot to it, and I'm proud of everybody for staying awake. Good job. Um, but I want to encourage you, A, to read ahead. And, and B, um, just to pray and ask that God would help you and help me, help me explain it and help all of us to understand it a little better. So what are we going to take away from today? Well, I'm going to say what I always say. If there's anybody here, if there's anybody listening online, or anybody who listens to this recording later, have you come to the only one who can save you? Our great and perfect high priest, Jesus Christ. Because if there's anybody who hasn't, you got to. 
Nobody's guaranteed tomorrow, whether the trumpet sounds and Jesus brings us home, or you step out in front of the RTA bus you weren't expecting, and splat, one way or the other, it's coming. I know, encouraging, right? But one way or the other, it's coming for all of us. And the only way to not be afraid of it is to know Jesus. Second, you understand the intercessory ministry of our Savior and what that means for your relationship with God the Father. On top of all the theological stuff we looked at today, which is incredible to me, this is the thing that if, if you don't have this, you need to. You need to understand. It's a game changer. Jesus is our advocate, defends us before the only righteous judge of the universe. He defends us against the accusations of our enemy. He defends us against the accusations of other people. This is why we're told in Romans 8, 31 through 39, that no one can bring a charge against God's elect and that there's nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As followers of Christ, we have got to get that. The day that that became reality for me. Man, I've been a Christian for a while. And it was not in year one or year 10 or probably even in year 15. It took me a while to get that, to, to understand what that meant. That there's really nothing that can separate me from his love. That there's really no one who can bring an accusation against me. That doesn't give me an excuse to sin. But it means that I can go to him anytime I want. That he loves me no matter how stupid I've been. That's comforting. And it'll do wonders for you when you get it. Finally, we talked a little bit about Jesus' character. And we're told in Galatians 4.19 that it's the character of Christ that should be formed in us. So I just challenge you, how are you intentionally pursuing that spiritual formation in your life? There are a lot of ways, but are you doing any of them intentionally? Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for your great love for each of us. We thank you, God, for your goodness, for your mercy. I thank you for your son, and I pray each of us would not only know you, but know you better, to grow in you, to trust you more, to rest in you, our intercessor and advocate, all for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.